At Jacob's Well, we love the Bible. You'll find that out very quickly. We do believe it's the Word of God, and it's important for us to preach it every Sunday and read it every day. And so if you don't own a Bible, please take one of those Bibles to keep. We want to give that to you as a gift from Jacob's Well. Today we're going to be looking at the question, what went wrong? And we have a short video of interviews that we're going to show you before we dive into the topic. I wish I had an answer for that, but I agree it is. <laughs> I don't know, but uh, anytime something you can have the worst tragedy in the world and you ask people that are religious, they'll say, well, they never have an answer for you, so they'll say, God has a reason. Yeah. And that's that's kind of like a cop-out for anything. Sure. I don't know. It's just it's hard to believe a God would let so many terrible things happen to the people. But, sure. You know, they say that there's a reason for it, but I don't know if that reason could be, you know. Well, why do, do you know why bad things happen in the world? Why is the world messed up? Not so much the reason, but... No, I just think it's, we're here, and bad things, bad people do bad things, and sometimes bad things just happen, and stuff happens, you okay. know. I, right. I, I guess I don't want to be more profound than that. No, that's okay, that's good. Yeah. Everybody is in it for themselves. Sure. Not really working together. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, uh, like anything, lack of communication. People don't talk. They just assume, you know, what people are thinking or judge people before they really get to know them, you know. Uh, people are greedy and they're malicious. And there's, uh, I don't know, there is a lack of values. What's wrong with the world? Are the ones that are not raised the right way. They're not raised with values. They're raised that the parents let them do whatever they want and that's what they turn out to be. They're taught the wrong thing in life. Um, I think the world's messed up because people let things get in the way of what's really important. And so when those that value system gets, how do you want to say? Mixed up. Yeah, when the value system gets mixed up, then you know their priorities change and and they do things that they maybe wouldn't have done initially. Okay. And so what's the priority? What should it be or yeah. what is what it? should it be? Yeah, that, you can answer either one. Both um, I mean, priority should be, you know, you shouldn't put yourself first. Yeah. And in today's world, most people do put themselves first. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So we're in the middle of this series created discovering what you were made for. And we're answering five questions that the book of Genesis answers five questions that our hearts long to know the answers for five questions that we were created to ask. The first question we ask is where did I come from? And God answers this in Genesis by saying that we came from God himself, that he created us from nothing by the power of his word with good order. This second week, we looked at, do I have value? If so, why? And God tells us, yes, absolutely you have value because you are created in my image, because you are created for a relationship with one another, and you are created very good. Then we looked at, what is my purpose? And God tells us that our purpose is to rule over creation in a way that reflects the image of God for the glory of God. And that Christ is restoring our image back into his image, into the image of God. And then last week, this week, 
And next week, we're spending three weeks looking at what went wrong. Why is the world so messed up? All you have to do is look at your family, look at the news, and you can tell that things are broken. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Last week, we looked at the story of the fall, that God commanded Adam and Eve. He said, you may eat of any tree in the whole garden. Feast. Enjoy. It was an abundant provision. And he said, but this one tree, don't eat this one tree, but everything else you can have. And what tree did they want? (laughs) The one tree that was forbidden. And so they ate of that tree. This week, we're going to look at the guilt of the fall, the guilt of our sin. If you would open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3 with me. We're going to look specifically at verses 7 through 13, but we're going to read verse 1 through 13 just so we get the context of the whole story, especially if you weren't here last week. It's on page 2 in the Red Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 13, and we're going to specifically look at 7 through 13 today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. God, as we open up your holy, wonderful amazing word we so much appreciate the honesty with which it talks about our condition god that we live in a fallen world lord and we come confessing that all of us are guilty god and yet there are ways to deal with it and ways not to deal with it and so god pray this morning that you would alive in our hearts teach us what we are to do in christ's name amen After Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, something drastically changed. Drastically changed. There was what we call the fall. 
They fell from their position of righteousness before a holy God. They fell from a perfect, wonderful, glorious relationship with God. And they discovered disorder, guilt, shame. All of us experience this guilt. All of us experience the burden of guilt, the weight of guilt. I remember when I was in elementary school, and I can't remember if I've told you this story, but here's more to it. Uh, I was in a bus, and I was sitting on the, in the, in the, not a pew, I guess it's a pew. I was sitting in the seat that had the wheel well. You know, it's kind of more cramped, more crowded. And I was sitting there, and this kid came and sat with me, and I thought, you know what, this isn't cool. He should go sit in another seat that has more space. And so I asked him to, to leave, and he said no. And then in my elementary school mind, I thought, I know what I'll do. I had a bag of coins in my backpack that I brought for show and tell. And I, brought, I pulled the bag out so you could only see the top. You couldn't see the coins. And I said, hey, do you want some drugs? <laughs> this is an elementary school. All right. Hey, you want some drugs? I'm thinking this will make the guy leave the seat. And he said, no. And I said, all right, well, I tried. Well, the next day I got a nice invitation to the principal's office. And uh, I walk up there and, and I find out that I'm in trouble. And uh, I explained to him the story. But that afternoon I went over to the kid's house. My mom took me over. And I just remember the weight of the guilt and the weight of the impending judgment, the suspension that was coming. And I just remember how heavy it felt upon my shoulders. And it was so heavy that I was actually walking to the front door and I remember hitting kind of a, a, a crack in the sidewalk and I fell. And it was hard to get back up because I just felt the weight of my sin and the judgment that was coming. All of us have felt the weight of our sin, the weight of guilt on us. And the question isn't, are you guilty or are you not guilty? Because God tells us that all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not even one. No one seeks God. And so the question isn't, are you guilty or are you not guilty of sin? The question is, what do you do with that guilt? Because there are several answers out there. There are several things that we do with it, but only one is right and true. And so as we look at the story of Adam and Eve, we see that they do three things with their guilt. And we're going to look at those. First, they hide their guilt. Then they flee their guilt. And then they shift their guilt. They hide it, they flee it, and they shift it. So those are the three things we're going to look at today. First off, let's look at how they hide their guilt. Look at verse Genesis 2-5 with me, if you would. Keep your Bibles open. Uh, we're going to look back at Genesis 2 and 3 often throughout this. In Genesis 2-5, Satan makes this half-truth promise to Adam and Eve. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, being the forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened. And then if you skip forward to, I'm sorry, that's Genesis 3, 5, not 2, 5. And then you skip forward to Genesis 3, 7, and it says, then the eyes of both were opened, just like Satan said. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so their eyes were open, just like Satan said. But instead of seeing delight and joy they were ashamed. They decided we need to put fig leaves off on. We need to cover ourselves up. They're ashamed of who they are and what they had done. And you see how far they fell from their created state. When you look back at Genesis 2.25, it 
It says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not, not, not ashamed. That's the final verse before the story of the fall, that man and woman were fully naked and unashamed. They were naked physically, but also emotionally and spiritually before one another. And they weren't ashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed of. There was no sin in their lives. There was nothing that they needed to hide. But once they ate that fruit, their eyes were open and shame came over them. And it lasts all the way to today. There's a quote by a guy named Steve Gallagher. Steve Gallagher is a guy who writes on addiction um, and other uh, sin issues. And he says this, Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go, keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and cost you more than you can ever pay. When sin is staring us in the face, when temptation is around us, sin looks fairly harmless. It seems like the consequences are not that bad. But as we dive in to our sin, as we look back, we can see the devastation. This is what happened to Adam and Eve. They thought, you know, if we eat of that fruit, really, what's going to happen? What are the consequences? Is it going to be that bad? But it was absolutely devastating to their relationship for each other and their relationship to God. It brought shame into their lives. There's a story of a preacher who was preaching a sermon, which you'll never hear from me, but he was preaching a sermon on the sin of swearing. And he stated that one of the people in the congregation was particularly guilty of having a very foul mouth. And he pointed out many times, there's one of you that I'm thinking of that has a very foul mouth. Well, after the sermon, after the service, he stood him back and he shook people's hands as they walked out. And everybody thought that they were talking about them. So a woman walks out and she says, I will never darken this door again. I will never come back to this church. I can't believe you talked about me in that way. She decided that she was going to flee from her sin, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The next one came and said, well, if I knew that you were so near to me last week, I would have used better language. (laughs) The next one came and said, you know, you really should have come to me privately to talk to me about this. It wasn't right for you to tell the whole congregation. And so he was shifting his blame, which we'll talk about, but saying, you're in the wrong, pastor. Another one said, you have embarrassed me more than I've ever been embarrassed in my whole life. And then the one came, the one that the pastor was speaking of, the real culprit. And he comes up to the pastor and he shakes his hand with a smile and says, brother, that was what I call a real sermon. You certainly did put it to them today. This guy was hiding from his sin. He wouldn't tell it to anyone. He was putting fig leaves all over himself, trying to keep anyone from knowing the sin that he was in. He was guilty, but he was hiding it. You know, there's a tension that is in all of us, that we want to be fully known and we want to be fully loved. We want to be fully known and we want to be fully loved. We want our fig leaf completely removed so people know us in our entirety and still love us completely. But here's the tension, is that we cannot be fully loved, excuse me, we cannot be, yeah, we cannot be fully loved unless we are fully known. We can't be fully loved unless we're fully known. 
But we think that if we are fully known, nobody would dare to love us. And so there's this tension. What do we do with this? And so many times what we do is we just hide our sin. We don't tell anyone. Because if we told other people, there's no way that they would possibly love us. One of the implications of this is that many of us don't seek out any sort of accountability. We don't seek out someone else to share our sin with, to share our guilt with. We don't meet with anyone and take off our fig leaves and say, this is my struggle. This is what I'm, this is what I'm struggling with. This, as well as these are my joys. You know, I meet with, a, with two other guys on a regular basis just so that we can walk through and say, here are the struggles in my life. Here is the shame. Here are the joys. Pray for me. Help me. See, we try to come together, take off our fig leaves and says, this is where my heart's really at. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Would you do this for me? Steve Gallagher, I'm going to quote him a few times today because he, does, he has a lot of great quotes on this. He says, if you don't want to get rid of the problem, confess it only to God. If you want to get rid of the problem, confess it to another person. And if you really want to get rid of the problem, keep yourself accountable. Do you have anyone in your life, a person who knows what it's like to be fully known by God and still fully loved by God, who can come to you, who can know you fully, someone that you can take your fig leaf off and say, this is where my heart's really at, and it is ugly. And they see it, and they can fully love you because they know a God who has fully loved them, despite their sin, despite their ugliness. I want to encourage you to find help, to find someone to connect with, to share the struggles in your life. At Jacob's Well, we have many opportunities for that. One is with men. We have these things forming called triads, and they're just kind of forming organically as men have said, hey, I want accountability in my life. I want someone who will help me grow closer to the Lord. I want someone who I can open, I can take off my fig leaf with, and we can share life together. There is the woman's Bible study that meets on Thursday. You can always contact me or Jason There's community groups, or maybe just find a trusted friend, but I would encourage you to find someone to be open and honest with, because one of the results of the fall is that we oftentimes try to hide our guilt, try to hide our sin. And you see in this passage, the primary reason it seems that they put on their fig leaves was not to hide from God, but to hide from each other. And so God encourages us to be real with one another. And so they hide their guilt. The next thing they do is they flee guilt. Look at verse 8 with me. And they flee particularly from God. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So they try to flee from God when they hear him coming. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? See, the fall, the eating of the forbidden fruit, as we said, changed everything. We call this um, total depravity. A better word is pervasive depravity, that sin affects every inch of our body, every relationship that we're in. It's not as bad as it could be, but sin affects everything we do. It affects our work, it affects our play, it affects our marriages, it affects our parenting, 
It affects the way that we go to school. Sin affects everything. And Adam and Eve were excited to see God, to have him come into the garden, to fellowship with him. But then they ate of the fruit and they fleed from him. They were afraid of him. They didn't want fellowship with him. They fleed because of their guilt. They knew that it was true. And here's the funny thing. Can we flee from God? Really? The Bible tells us over and over again that people have tried and they always fail. Many of you may know the story of Jonah who tried to run away from God and he took him out of the belly of a fish and said, you're not fleeing. David in the Psalms talks about his sin and his desire to flee from God. And he says this, Psalm 139, 7 through 12. He says, where should I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light to you. This is the psalmist David saying, I'm trying to run away from God and I can't run away from God. And the psalm goes on and there's a glorious finish in which he says, you know me, search me, change me, do what you want to me. But he's trying to run from God. We all try to run from God in different ways. We either run from his people, we run from his church, we run from his word, we, we run from praying to him. We run from God when we're guilty. And this is what Adam and Eve did, and it's silly to do. It's kind of like when I play hide-and-seek with my son, Caleb. He'll say, Daddy, count to 20. And so, you know, one, two, three, four. And now I'll turn around, and Caleb's in the middle of the room covering his eyes, right? He thinks that I can't see him if he can't see me, right? And so I, I sort of walk around, where is Caleb? Right? Just playing with him. But when we try to hide from God, that's what we're doing. It's that silly. Or it's like a child who breaks the family vase and here's his father coming and runs off. He's going to be found. And so it's foolish to flee from God. And there's three reasons that I kind of want to walk through why it's foolish to flee from God. First off is because we can't flee God as we talked about. He sees us even if we cover our eyes. Secondly, is when we flee from God, we actually flee from good. James 1, 7 tells us that every good gift comes from God. And so when you're fleeing from God, when you're trying to flee from God, you're fleeing from your own good. You're fleeing from the giver of everything good. And finally, because when we flee, God still loves us. God still cares for us. Again, there is story after story after story in the Bible of people who tried to flee from God, and yet he still loved them. The book of Hosea is all about this, about a woman who the, God calls this prophet Hosea to marry this woman named Gomer, who is a whore. I mean, there's no other word to put for it, but she's a whore. And so he marries this woman, and she cheats on him again and again and again and again. And Hosea continues to go back to her, to love her, to cherish her. Even at one point, she sells herself into slavery, and Hosea comes and purchases her out of slavery. What a picture of what Christ has done for us. And so it's foolish to flee from God. It's foolish to run from the one person 
who fully knows you and fully loves you. Another quote from Steve Gallagher. The Christian who thinks he can continue hiding his sin will eventually discover that God loves him too much to allow him to remain bound to his secret sin. He is very patient and gentle with us, but he loves us too much to leave us in our sin. This is such good news. God will not let you dwell in your sin. There will be a day where he will let you get caught. He will let you mess up. He will let others come into your life and confront you because he loves you too much to let you keep dwelling in your sin. Hebrews talks about a father that gives discipline, loves his child, and the Lord will discipline us if he loves us. And so today, if you are running from God, stop. We have a God that we don't have to run from, but we can run to. This is what sets Christianity really apart from anything else is that in our sin, we don't have to fear God as judge, but if we trust in Christ, we can, we can run to him as our Savior. And so we see them hiding guilt. We see them fleeing guilt. Finally, we see Adam and Eve shifting guilt. It's obvious that they're guilty. They're caught red-handed. They're caught with cookie crumbs on their face. It's obvious that they're guilty. And this is what happened. Verse 11. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So Adam knows he's busted, right? So what's the appropriate thing to do? Blame it on someone else, right? All right, verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Adam straight out blames Eve. And I don't know if you remember just a few verses earlier in Genesis, 20, Genesis 2, 22 through 23, God gives Adam Eve and Adam sings over her. He rejoices over her. He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has been taken out of man. He was ecstatic about the woman coming into creation. But once the fruit is eaten, once the fall happens... The enthusiasm, the honeymoon, ends. She's the problem with our relationship. She's the reason why I get angry. She's the reason why I ate that fruit. Men, do you sing over your wife? Women, do you want to be sung over by your husband? Absolutely. And yet, we see even in our own hearts, we're so prone to be She's the one that's wrong with this relationship. She's the one that makes me angry. She's the one that makes me frustrated. The woman does the same thing. Look in verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So she's the first one to say, the devil made me do it. Right? She passes the buck. She shifts the guilt. She shifts the blame. You know, it's kind of scary being a pastor because when you're preparing a sermon, for some reason, God seems to be very faithful to give you illustrations in your own life of how you failed in these exact ways. So Wednesday, um, my wife's cooking dinner, and I'm like, how long till dinner? She says, 15 minutes. I'm like, all right, great. I can run to Menards really quick. So I go to, to run to Menards. And uh, my boys say, we want to go too, and I can't turn them down. So they get in the car. We get to Menards. I throw them in the cart, 
And I'm like, all right, let's go. So we run back to, I was buying an attic ladder. We run to the back, and I'm looking at the attic ladders, trying to figure out which one to buy. And Corbin says, Daddy, can I get out of the cart? Which is wonderful. He asked permission, and I said, yeah, sure, go ahead, whatever. I'm looking at the ladders. Well, Corbin starts to get out of the cart, and it tips. And Caleb is in the cart, and Caleb just starts screaming. And so I pick Caleb up, and I look over, and it just so happened to be right by the break area in Menards. And so there's four employees looking at me, like, who's this dad? Um, And so what did I do? I said, Corbin Jackson, what did you do? You should know better than to get out of the cart, right? Forget the fact that I just gave him permission, that I just said it was okay to do it. I immediately shifted the blame to him to avoid the shame from the employees. I mean, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, why are you such, in such a bad mood? Why are you so selfish? Why are you so frustrated? Why, what, why are you so messed up? What's wrong with you? Oh, it's because my parents were horrible to me. It's because my wife is in a bad mood. My husband's in a bad mood. It's because I have really rebellious kids. It's because my parents are just too harsh on me. And we blame everyone else but, but ourselves. And you see this right from the beginning. They pass the buck. They pass the blame. Our history definitely will explain our tendency towards certain sins. It will explain it. But it never excuses it. We have to own our own guilt. We have to own our own sin. The final thing we can do with guilt is actually not in this passage, sadly enough. The final thing we can do with our guilt is confess it. Why does God say to Adam, where are you? God knows where Adam is. God knows what Adam has done. Why does he do this? I think it's because God is calling Adam and Eve forth to confess their sin, to repent. And the reason I believe it is when you look at verse 11. In verse 11, God says to the man, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, God knows, right? God knows that they've eaten of it. He's leading Adam to repentance, leading Adam to confess his sin. And Adam doesn't. If you look in verse 14, he does the same thing with the woman. He says, excuse me, verse 13, The Lord God said to the woman, What is, what is this that you have done? And she blames this as well. He's trying to ask them to confess their sin. And yet this is the last thing that they want to do. But don't miss the grace in this passage. God knew what they had done. He knew that they had disobeyed him, that they ate from the only tree that he said you could not eat from, and he still comes to the garden. He still comes into the garden and he says, where are you? Even though they're fleeing, even though they're hiding, even though they're going to blame shift, he comes to the garden. Even though we run away from God, God still comes to us and his son, Jesus Christ. And Christ comes to us in our guilt, in our shame. And he goes and he stands trial before Herod and before Pilate. And both of these men, neither of them Jews, neither of them Christians, says, this man is not guilty. But he still died for guilt. He died for your guilt, and he died for my guilt. 
that are standing before a righteous God would be innocent. And throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, God constantly calls us to repent. Luke 24, 47 says this, Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name, Jesus' name, to all nations. Luke 15, 10, There is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents, who owns their sin and says, Father, forgive me for my sin. This is what makes Christianity distinct. Because Jesus died on the cross for our guilt, for our sins, instead of hiding from God, we can now hide in God. Instead of fleeing from God, we can now flee to God. Instead of shifting our sin to others, we can now shift our sins to Jesus, who paid for them on the cross. There's a story of the Times, the New York, or it's not New York Times, the London Times in London, asked some of the famous writers in the area to write an essay on one question. And it's the same question we're dealing with today. The one question is, what's wrong with the world? And they send it out to all these writers to write back and tell them what is wrong with this world to come back and write an essay. And one of the men that they asked was a guy named G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian man, a theologian. What is wrong with the world? And this is what he wrote. His essay. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. A man who will own his sin. You know, we looked at the video earlier and all these people, what's wrong with, why is the world so messed up? Well, because there's people out there who, you know, are bad. It's us. We're the reason the world is so messed up. But hear God coming to you and saying, where are you? Coming to you and saying, confess your sin to me. Put it on the shoulders of Jesus. Lay it at the cross and be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise you that you are a God that we don't have to run from, that you are a God that we don't have to hide from. As a matter of fact, if we tried to run, if we tried to hide, we couldn't. And even when we try to shift the blame, when we try to shift our sin and our guilt to other people, you know better. And so God, pray that you would make us a people of repentance, sorrowful, joyful repenters, sorrowful that we have sinned against you, but joyful that it is paid for at the cross. We are so ecstatic that you would do this for us, that you would send your son to die for us, that we might live in freedom, live not in guilt, but justified, declared righteous before a holy God. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we celebrate the Lord's Supper, one of the essential things to receiving the Lord's Supper is that you do confess that you are a sinner, that your sins make you guilty before God, but that you have trusted in Jesus Christ to declare you righteous, to pay for your sin, to pay for your guilt, and that God looks at you as if you have never, ever sinned in your whole life. He declares you righteous by the blood of Christ. If you're here today and you believe that, I'd encourage you to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. Be nourished 
in your soul when you receive it by faith, knowing that God has given you strength and power to run to him first in your sin, to lay it at the cross. If you're here today and you do not trust in Christ, if you're investigating Christianity, we are so glad you're here checking this out. And we encourage you to come back, but please do not take of this. Because God says when you take of this in an unworthy manner, you eat and drink judgment on yourself, and people even die if they take it apart from faith. But if you are a Christian, be nourished by faith this morning. Matthew 26, 26 says this, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives.